Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. There in your bulletins, we return today to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We complete our reading of that great chapter this morning. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and powerful, infallible, inerrant word. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Now what's the then? What are we following? Remember, uh, Nathan had given uh, to David that great and that wonderful and that amazing long speech, the longest speech from Almighty God that we have seen, that we have heard since all the way back to Mount Sinai when the Lord spoke to Moses. And now David is responding to that word that, of the Lord spoken through the prophet Nathan to him. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. This is Torah for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation and its gods. And you established for your, yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build your house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God. 
And your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. Amen. What an amazing, amazing prayer. And this prayer has so much to teach us this morning. Before we dive in, I'll I, just let you know, I, as a child, I used to love the World War II sitcom, Hogan's Heroes. Uh, I think there was Colonel, was it Colonel Clink, uh, Sergeant Schultz, and all the mayhem and all the things that those American POWs were trying to do to get out. And then as I got a little bit older, uh, I began to be fond of that old movie, The Great Escape. And you know, both the movie and the sitcom uh, were about prisoners of war. And, and I've thought about prisoners of war a good bit uh, during my life. I had a great uncle who was a prisoner of war in Japan. And his life was, absol- his, as a POW, it was absolutely miserable. And he came back from the war just totally, totally messed up. Um, POWs, they, they find themselves in prisons and oftentimes they're looking out through a fence with raised wire and they're looking just a short distance outside that fence to freedom. And, and the distance between where they are and that freedom, it's not that far, is it? It's not that far geographically. But it's a long, 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 long way. It's a long, long way of tunneling, digging, of hiding your dirt, of finding enough wood timbers to frame up the tunnel walls. It's a long, long way to get into that tree line on the other side of the fence to to get free. It's a long way. A lot of danger involved. Well, I say all that just to say, when we first met this David, we met him as a young shepherd, didn't we? Bethlehem. And geographically, it's a very short distance between the Bethlehem where we met King David before he was king, when he was a shepherd, and the King David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in Jerusalem. Very short geographical distance. It's a distance of six miles. But I want you to think of the true distance between when Samuel went to anoint a new king and now when God establishes this Davidic covenant with this king in Jerusalem. So much has transpired. So much has gone on. And we find ourselves now finally after that long, not geographic distance, but that long time difference, that long uh, amazing spiritual difference, we find ourselves in this banquet of words. In, in, In this great chapter of a great speech of a gracious God to this very human king, and yet a great king, a king through whom God would bring about the greatest of kings, the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords, 
the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah for his Israel, for his people. It's a pretty astounding thing once you think about this distance. We find ourselves finally here in this text, and I want us to look at this text. I want us to think about where we've been just briefly at the first half of the chapter. Uh, we saw revealed to us in the speech that Nathan gave from God to David. We saw something of the great wisdom of our God, something of the great and astounding, and it's just, it still boggles my mind, the humility of our God and the amazing grace of our God. And we've seen how that, that, that wisdom, that humility, and that grace is seen supremely revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ the one who humbled himself even to the point of what? Death on a cross for his Israel, for his people. That's what we saw and, and, and we thought last week of what that should cause to happen in us. We should revel in this glorious God and we should sing his praises and then we should go out and live as those who know something of his wisdom, his humility, and his grace, right? That was what our response should be. Today we come and we see what David's response to that same speech, what David's response was. And the way I'd like for us to tackle this text, I want us to first of all see what David didn't pray, what he didn't say, what he didn't do. Then secondly, I want us to see what he did pray, how he prayed, how he structured his prayer. And then lastly, I want us to see what he did as he prayed. Okay? What he didn't pray, what he did pray, and what he did as he prayed. First of all, and I think if you meditate upon this, there's some great lessons to draw. What did he not pray? Think about your own heart. Think about your own uh, life in this fallen world. David had great plans. It was even a good plan. He wanted to build what? A temple unto the Lord. Great and glorious plan. And, and as I mentioned earlier this morning, I, I, I'm, I'm imagining David thinking about that. And I don't think it was just, okay, I'm going to build a temple. I think he was already planning he was already considering the architect to use. He was already considering the contractors to use. He was already considering where he would get this supply, these supplies, this. I think his plan was probably pretty fully orbed, already there. And then God comes along, slams the brakes, and says, what? No, you're not going to do it. Do you ever have plans in your life that are pretty far advanced, and they could be very good, wonderful things. And you've poured lots of energy into them. And you're going, and you're going, and you're going, and then all of a sudden, the brakes are slammed. What is your temptation? What's Lee's temptation? What's our temptation when that happens? Our temptation is to be mad. Our temptation is to get disillusioned. Our temptation is to be what? Bitter. Bitter. Do you see any bitterness in David's words and prayer? No. No. Why? Because grace is at work already in his heart. 
Yes, my plans were great. They were good. They were a means of giving thanks unto the Lord. But that's not what God wants. And God loves me. And I love him. And I'm going to trust. No bitterness. He who has ears, let him hear. The second thing to notice about what he didn't say is he didn't balk at grace. If you are a fallen human being and you haven't tasted of God's grace and you don't know of God's grace, then what do you tend to think about God's grace when it is presented to you? If you're a fallen sinner who hasn't been changed by grace and you hear, listen, sinner, nothing in your hands you bring. Simply to the cross cling. It's not about what you do, sinner. It's about what God has done in Jesus Christ. The person whose heart hasn't been changed by grace balks at that. Why? Because we want to claim what? Some of the credit. But notice, is that the response of David here? Lord, are you sure about that? I mean, I'm ideal to build this temple for you. I've already got the architect, I've already got the contractors, I've already got the plans, I've already got the, starting to get the supplies. And by the way, if you go into uh, uh, First Chronicles and read later, uh, the chronicler gives us a little bit more information. And it does seem as if David started getting supplies ready and gave them to his son. Do you see that balking? No, you don't. You see, Lord, you are great. You see, God is great, God is Good. Let us thank Him for everything. Let us thank Him for everything. What He didn't pray. May we not pray certain things. May we, by God's grace, not grow bitter when our plans don't come to fruition. Let us not pray balking at grace, but pray, Oh Lord, always give me open hands. Now, notice how He prayed. Notice how he prayed. It's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing prayer. It's hard to get out of. I'll tell you that. And I'll uh, I'll warn you ahead of time. It's hard to get out of this prayer. Uh, Notice the structure. He, He starts with praise. And then he goes to petition. Starts with praise, goes to petition. In the praise, he first starts praising God for personal grace. And then he moves from personal grace to praising God for kingdom grace. And then after that, he launches into petitions. Petitions based on promised grace. Okay, let's dive in. Praise. Notice the place in which he places praise and adoration and devotion to the Lord in his prayer. First, at the very beginning, in extended fashion, because he knew to whom he prayed. Do we remember to whom we pray? If you're like me, so oftentimes what do we do? What does, what does Lee do? He rushes into prayer with my what? My petitions, my supplications, my needs, my desires, my hurts, my wants. And I just launch in instead of this. What does David do? 
praises God extensively for who He is and what He's doing, what He's done, and what He's promising to do. Praise. Now you ask, Pastor Lee, can we ever go directly to God with our petitions? And I think the answer is yes. And and I used this morning an illustration taken from Luke chapter 18. And if you remember that passage, that passage, Jesus talks about a Pharisee and a publican, a Pharisee and a tax collector. They both go to the temple and they both pray. And the Pharisee prays first and he says, Oh God, and he, he says, I thank you. And you think, Oh, he has started out right. He started out well. He's doing the right thing. And then he says, I thank you that I'm not what? Like all these others. And that I am like this. And these are the things I've done. And I'm not like that dirty, rotten tax collector. The Pharisee, the Pharisee, the Pharisee. And then we get to the prayer of the publican, the tax collector. And what does he pray? Does he launch into a long list of praises to God for who God is? His prayer is pretty simple, and he launches right into one petition. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You need a prayer to pray all the time? There it is. There it is. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me. To me, a sinner. Some even practice that, say that with their heartbeat, with their breath. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He launched into a petition, but notice the petition flows out of a heart that recognizes the God to whom he turns. It's powerful, merciful, Gracious. Can you just launch into petitions? Yes, you can, but they need to come out of a heart that recognizes and loves and adores God. But I think we would be well served to follow the example here of David. Praise first, praise first, praise first. Then petition. Knows the basis of his praise. Again, I said he, 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 he talks about personal grace and he talks about kingdom grace. He talks about personal grace. Who am I? And Buddy has picked, picked a wonderful song for us this morning. Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house? In verse 19, he says, your servant's house. Verse 20, for you know your servant, O Lord God. Verse 21, the second part, to make your servant Know it. You see, David is not saying, Lord, I hear that you're a good God to other people. He's saying, no, I've experienced it. I know it personally. You are a good God and gracious God to me. And I've known of your grace. He he says, I've known of your past grace, doesn't he? Your past preserving and protecting grace. Notice the second part of verse 18. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house? That you have brought me thus far. That you have brought me thus far. There's so much packed into that, isn't there? Think back of all the sermons we've already preached and we've already had on the life of David. That's a part of that thus far. Calvin said that David was saved from a thousand deaths. 
And so have you been. So have I been. Saved from so many deaths. Saved from so many struggles. So many pains. So many heartaches. I know there are things I've been saved from, things that I, I, I could have died. You could have died. We've been saved from. There's so many of those things we know, but just think of all the things that we don't know and yet we've been saved from. And David prays such a prayer. What does your own, you have brought me thus far, what does it include? What are the things you know are included? And just imagine this. There's tons of stuff you don't know you've been saved from. And you've been saved from answers, the answers you wanted to your prayers oftentimes. And that's been good because you've been saved from so much that would have hurt and would have hurt others. He's also uh, talking about and praising God for future promised grace. Again, the, the passage, the prayer is just ignited by the promises of, of God. We see that in verse 19, verse 21. We see also that he's praising God for God's sovereign eternal grace, His sovereign electing grace. Verse 20, notice that. And what more can David say to you, for you know your servant, O Lord God. Now that particular word, know there, it's, it's not really, in the way David is praying this prayer, he's not really saying, oh Lord, you're omniscient, you know me, you know things, you know all things. As wonderful as that is, and, and he does talk about the omniscience of God, and he does praise God in his prayer in Psalm 139 for everything that God knows. That God knows and has searched him out. You know when I sit down, he says unto the Lord, and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You know that beautiful Psalm 139 where, God is, where David is praising God for his omniscience. As, as wonderful as that knowledge is, and as much as it should elicit not only David's praise of God, it should elicit our praise of God, that's not really the idea of knowing that he's talking about here in this text. As wonderful as that knowledge is, that omniscience is, the knowledge that David is speaking of here is something more intimate. The knowledge that he's praising here goes beyond just knowing about. It's the knowledge of intimacy. Again, think through the way the Scriptures use this idea of knowing. You hear that such and such knew his wife, and she what? Conceived. That's the knowledge of intimacy. That's the knowledge of love. That's the knowledge of choice. Basically what David is saying here, he, he, he's basically praising God. He's saying, oh Lord, God, out of all of humanity, you've chosen Israel. Out of all Israel, you've chosen Judah. Out of all Judah, you've chosen me. Why, oh Lord? It's a praise of, of astounded wonder that God should choose him. If you are a child of God, you are known by God. 
You are beloved by God. You were chosen by God from eternity past. And guess what that should do as you consider that? Shouldn't it call forth praises from your, from your breasts? Shouldn't it call forth praise coming out of your mouths? If it doesn't, dear ones, and I know sometimes we are spiritually dull, and I know sometimes we're sleepy, and I know sometimes we, our minds are distracted, but, but if it never calls forth praise out of you, if instead you've got this sort of attitude, oh, well, of course He chose me. Big deal. Then my, my question is, what does that sort of attitude reveal? Particularly if that's your attitude all the way, all, all the time. Could it be that it reveals an unconverted heart that truly doesn't know God's grace? David praises Yahweh for his past, preserving and protecting grace. David praises God for his promised future grace. He praises God for his electing sovereign grace shown to him and his family. But he goes on. You'll see that in, in, in verse 19 where he talks about all this was, was Torah, was instruction for mankind. And then you see it in verses 22 and 23 and down in 24 where you see this, this grace shown to David and his dynasty and the king that was to come was also for Israel, for the people of God. A redeemed Israel, redeemed out of Egypt, and redeemed for the Lord. Redeemed from a kingdom of darkness. Redeemed for God of glory. A, a, a prayer of praise for kingdom grace, for preserving Israel. You see that repeatedly, don't you? Forever, forever, forever. This continues. God's people will always be His people. He'll never leave them or forsake them. And therefore, it's also a praise for God's kingdom grace, which is kingdom grace for God's covenant people. He will be their God. They will be His people. Think about that. And then, then He does what? He, then He launches into petition. All that praise and then petition. We don't have time to break down the petition, but here's the main focal point of that second half of the prayer. He prays what? The promises of God. He prays the promises of God. When things don't look like they're going the way it should, guess what we should do? Take the promises of God upon our lips and send them forth unto the Lord, knowing that our Savior will intercede for us. Take the promises of God and pray them and pray them and pray them. Pray the promise that He is your God and you are His people. Pray the promise that He'll never leave you or forsake you. Pray the promise that Jesus is the bread of life that is yours. Pray the promise that all those who follow after Jesus have eternal life. Pray the promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Pray all these promises again and again and again. What a glorious prayer. Praise and petitions. And done boldly. Done confidently. And now let me ask you, is that your prayer? Is that the way you pray? Is that the way we pray? If you were to do a, a voice-to-text, use a voice-to-text app on your phone or on your computer, and you 
would close your eyes and start praying, and then you go back and look at what was typed, what would your prayer look like? Would it look like this? Lastly, what David did as he prayed. Just a little bit, a little bit of verse 18. Very, very first part of the very first verse we read. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Went in. Went in where? What's David been concerned about? The ark of God. The ark of God outside his palace window. And the ark of God is what? In a tent. Where's the end? I think what's implied is David went in and went to. And you think about how uh, brave this was. He went in before the ark. Why? He wants to be near God. The God who saved him, the God who's given him all these great promises, the God he loves. He goes in and then he does what? He sits. If I'm not mistaken, this is the only time, at least in the Old Testament, where we see this posture for prayer. The postures for prayer are standing, they are kneeling, and they are laying flat out. They're not sitting. That's the way we pray, isn't it? Something's not right. I hate to say that, but something's not right. He goes in and he sits. Now, what's that sitting mean? Well, I think maybe some of it's humility. And I think maybe it's like Mary. What Mary do? She went, went in and she sat at the feet of Jesus to listen to Him. I think there's that. But I also think He goes in as what? Before God. He goes in as God's vice regent on earth. He goes in as King David. And sitting is sitting in essence upon a throne. And then He prays. And I don't think David had a clue as to what he was picturing for us. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Here are these verses. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service. The priest going around in the temple didn't sit down. He stood. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His Feet, For by a single offering He has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. David in going in and David sitting down before the ark is picturing for us the greater David, the son of David, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful prayer 
What a wonderful model, right? But how utterly convicting it is. I don't pray like this regularly. If I, if I were to read on my screen that those prayers that I have used that voice-to-text app for, they don't look like this. Not enough. And I'm convicted of it. But brothers and sisters, let me end it this way by saying, this prayer, even though it's a model for my praying, shouldn't drive my focus to be upon my praying. It's not about my praying. What's it about, brothers and sisters? You know this. It's about Jesus' praying. Go back over to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Begin with verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. There's that forever again. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to do what? Make intercession for us. It's not about your prayer. It's not about my prayer. It's about his prayer on our behalf always to the Father. Pray. Lord, Father, this is what we've promised. This is what they're praying. Let's give it to them. And if he prays that way, guess what's going to happen? Everything he prays for. As unstoppable as a story I told this morning, I'll tell it now. Story of a well-built, strong, Scottish Highland Presbyterian pastor in the 18th century. His name was Aeneas Sage. Aeneas Sage was a pastor in an area of a, a well-known laird or lord, and the, the man who was the laird or lord was well-known for his evil and his wickedness. And Aeneas Sage decided, I'm going to the laird's castle, and I'm going to set up catechism class, and I'm going to catechize the people of the castle, and the people of the area. So off he goes. And he knocks on the castle door. And the, and the, the laird comes. And, and Aeneas Sage said, I've come to discharge my duty unto God to your conscience and my own. The evil laird responded, I care nothing for any of these three. Out of my house, or I'll turn thee out. Mr. Sage, well-built, stocky, strong, Presbyterian pastor, responded simply, if you can. And then he commenced to give the laird a catechism lesson. And the laird ended up on the floor, hogtied, hands and feet. And Mr. Aeneas Sage then says, okay, everybody in the castle, in the area, it's time for catechism class. And nobody refused. Nobody refused. 
Why? Here he was, powerful man of God. You've got an even more powerful and glorious one who is making intercession and praying for you and me and this congregation and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the known world. He's praying for us now. And guess what? His prayers will be answered for you, for me, and for all of His beloved. Let's pray. Father, I pray now just a simple prayer. Turn my eyes and turn the eyes of all my brothers and sisters gathered here and those who are at home who are watching. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. For it's in his name I pray. Amen.